This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, I am recording today's program three to five days from the time you listen to it, depending on when the program airs and uh, on what station you happen to catch us and whether or not you listen to the podcast version of the program. And I only give you that perspective because things are changing rapidly. By the day, there are new developments. And certainly there is a lot of talk about the U.S. election. Certainly some of the reported glitches that we have seen actually confirmed uh, are not comforting for those of us that uh, are watching the process. And you know, we all look at things differently from a political perspective, but it seems that in the age of blockchain technology, there should be a better way to conduct an election without looking, looking like a banana republic in the process. And I certainly hope that all the officials take their time, sort it out, so that all Americans who look at things differently politically can at least be 100% comfortable that uh, we have a good system. So hopefully uh, we can learn something from this as well. Now, regardless of how the election plays out, regardless of what may happen between now and January 20, I'd like to focus on a constant, something that I believe will not change, and that is Federal Reserve policy, which is, to use a technical financial term, crazy levels of money creation. As I'll talk about with my guest on today's program, Mr. Carl Denninger, fiat currency this year in 2020 has expanded, according to the research I've done, by about 65%. That means there's 65% more money floating around than there was at the beginning of the year. And... Just last week, Jerome Powell, who is the chair of the Federal Reserve, he went on record stating that more stimulus is needed to help the U.S. economy. Now, the Federal Reserve chair and members of the Federal Reserve board don't tend to speak very plainly. Stimulus means money. And at this point, the only source of more money is to create it, literally out of thin air. And as we have been talking about on this program for quite a long time, certainly you can create some money and get the illusion of prosperity. You might even be able to create a lot of money and get the feeling that you have even more prosperity. However, that process of money creation cannot continue indefinitely without having some ugly consequences. Now, I would encourage you to get ready for these potential ugly consequences by educating yourself. One thing that I have learned after working in the financial industry for a very long time is that no one cares as much about your money as you do. 
You need to take responsibility for your money. You need to take responsibility and do your own research. And to that end, we have the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, where we have provided you some free resources to help you educate yourself. You can also sign up for the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app on the website. Again, the website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. So back to Mr. Powell, the the chair of the Federal Reserve. And for those of you that maybe are new listeners to the program, the Federal Reserve or the Central Bank of the United States is a private group of bankers. See, back in 1913, in the month of December, just before the Christmas holiday, which which is when the politicians in Washington have historically done a lot of things they don't want to draw attention to. But in December of 1913, then-President Woodrow Wilson signed into law the Federal Reserve Act. That gave private bankers control of U.S. monetary policy. Well, fast forward 107 years almost, and we have the chair of the Federal Reserve saying we need essentially, to print more money. We need more stimulus. Now, the International Business Times wrote about this, and I want to give you just a bit from that article. Mr. Powell is quoted in the article as saying, the United States has done better than expected economically. However, he said the outlook is, quote, extraordinarily uncertain. Mr. Powell said that despite a jump in growth in the last quarter when economic data was reported, the pace of improvement has moderated and spending has slowed. Well, why has spending slowed? It's because many people that got government stimulus have already spent the money. We had the most, as I've talked about on past programs, the most unique situation when we had the economy decline by more than 30% in the second quarter of this year, and at the same time, because of government stimulus, because of money printing, personal incomes went up. Well, obviously, when incomes go up because of government stimulus, that is not a permanent increase in income. So Mr. Powell is now saying, we need some more stimulus. Now, Mr. Powell said the support provided by the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, which incidentally was passed back in March, was absolutely essential in supporting the recovery that we've seen so far, which has exceeded expectations. But further support, Mr. Powell says, is likely to be needed. Now, Powell did say that the Fed has more tools available. However, he did not provide specifics or the certainty that many analysts have been hoping to hear. Now, in the time I have remaining in this segment, let me just give you one of the quotes from Mr. Powell that was reported in the International Business Times article. Mr. Powell said this, and I quote, We can certainly look at new facilities if the situation deteriorates. Well, if you're a smart investor, if you're doing your own research, you have to ask yourself, what does that mean? 
When Mr. Powell says we can certainly look at new facilities if that situation deteriorates, you have to ask, what does that mean exactly? After all, the Fed has already, one, printed money and purchased assets from member banks. Now, many of the assets that they've purchased from member banks are what are known as toxic assets. Back after the financial crisis, when the Federal Reserve engaged in this emergency measure, this temporary emergency measure of quantitative easing or money printing, they decided to print out of thin air or create out of thin air $85 billion a month and use that newly printed cash to buy assets from member banks. Well, the assets they bought from member banks were U.S. government securities and mortgage-backed securities, and many of the mortgage-backed securities were just bad assets. The Fed has already, too, loaned newly printed money to the U.S. Treasury, which just started this year with the CARES Act I mentioned just a moment ago. And the U.S. Treasury has now, through the use of SPVs, or Special Purchase Vehicles, engaged in purchasing private corporate bonds. So they're going out and buying private corporate bonds. The Fed has already been monetizing the U.S. government's operating deficit in a roundabout way so they can possibly remain compliant with the Federal Reserve Act. And the Federal Reserve Act that was passed back in 1913 said that the Fed cannot just monetize the government debt. You can't print money and buy debt from the government. So what they've done is said, let's do this. Let's have the big banks buy the newly issued government debt. We'll have the Fed print the money. The Fed uses this newly printed money to buy the newly purchased U.S. government debt from big banks. So essentially, the Fed is funding government spending by printing money. So the Fed has done three things. They've, per- they've printed money and purchased assets from banks. They've loaned money to the U.S. Treasury, which is buying corporate bonds, and they're indirectly monetizing government debt. So that begs the question, what new tools might the Fed implement? I mean, the list of stuff that they've already done that I just went through is already mind-boggling when you think about it. If 10 years ago someone had told you that's what the Fed is going to be doing in 10 years, You just said, no way. Well, in the last segment of today's program, I am going to speculate on some of the policies the Fed could implement at this point. The reality is, there really aren't too many more places the Fed could go. But in the last segment, I'm going to share with you some ideas, which again, are pure speculation. But... If you're applying a little bit of critical thinking, if you're looking at the situation as it exists, which you should be doing if you want to know what to do with your money, it's a question that you should ask, and it's an exercise in which you should engage. Again, quick reminder, visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com to get some free educational resources. I will be back after these words with my guest, Mr. Carl Denninger.
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Hey, joining me once again on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl, uh, as I mentioned, is a returning guest. You can catch, at, catch his blog at market-ticker.org, market-ticker.org. And I should mention, as we have this conversation, it is uh, Monday, November 9, and uh, this program actually is not going to air until uh, like the 14th, 15th, 16th. So uh, there's always danger, given the current environment, in recording an interview with uh, several days to go because a lot can change. So I'll just start with that bit of uh, context for the listeners. Welcome back, Carl. Well, thank you for having me. And yeah, it's uh, given, given the rapid pace of uh, political and market happenings, that's, <laughs> that's a fair warning. Well, you know, I think uh, we've got to talk a little politics. I know we've got listeners uh, on on both sides of the aisle here, but, um, you know, there's uh, certainly some, uh, let's use the term irregularities. There certainly seems to be a lot of those floating around. What's your take? I think the real question, you know, there's there's this, this theme that goes on in the media in general and the politicians, for the most part, uh, tend to run with it, that there is no fraud in American elections. And and the reason they do it is because if confidence in the ability to vote out somebody you don't like is ever lost in this country, then what you have is a dirty civil war. You have a guerrilla war. Because we don't split along north-south borders like we used to in the United States. So the ability to say, well, you know, you're a northerner and, you know, you're, you're industrialist and you're a slave owner and, and therefore, you know, that's, that's why we're here. That doesn't exist anymore. It's it's in many cases it's the next house over, right? So this is this is a very you know that's a critical thing is that the the ability to take care of your beefs at the ballot box and the belief that we can do that is a critical element of American society and it's under assault and it and with good cause because there is good reason to believe that there were a large degree of irregularities. And there are irregularities in every election. And anyone who says there's not is a nut. There always have been. But the question is always, were they large enough to change the result? And that we don't know. Uh, The idea, though, that you can have media outlets and others calling races when there are questions that go to that level, okay? It's, It's not, was there fraud? Because the answer is always yes question is, is the fraud sufficient to change the outcome? And, and as long as that question's open, you can't make a call. Um, never mind the fact that the media doesn't determine who wins the election. The Electoral College does. And the Electoral College doesn't meet until December. So it's one thing when you have a, you know, you have a clear-cut victory and you have a concession. Okay, then it's fine. But that's not the case here. And we have several states where Statistically speaking, I've, I've got three or four different statistical indicators that say that, that this needs to be audited. Well, that doesn't mean that you're going to change the outcome. You may not. But there are these are there that say this does need to be audited. Well, you know, Carl, I, uh, there's a book, uh, I think it's titled, uh, as I recall, Means of Ascent, and it was written, uh, I think the author is uh, Caro, and in the book, uh, he talked about the fact that I think it was in the late 40s when Lyndon Johnson, when Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson rather, was running for uh, the Senate from the state of Texas, that uh, there was actually a judge um, that uh, later on, I must, presumably after the statute of limitations ran out, that admitted that he was part of the fraud and that some numbers were changed in a close race. And, 
you know, Lyndon Johnson became a senator and a vice president and a president, and you know, it might all go back to uh, to that first incident of uh, a, a little bit of fraud. So, I mean, that you're, you're right. This does exist, and it, you know, when, when you have that many millions of votes that are going to be counted, it's impossible probably to get it exact. But uh, so, do you? How do you? How do you see this playing out? Do you have an opinion? Well, I think that you know, we have a we have a county in Michigan that that detected a problem with the software that's used in most of the counties in Michigan. And it flipped 6,000 Trump votes to Biden. They fixed it and they reported the corrected numbers. All right. That is enough to go in and hand count a handful of counties, pick the six that have the highest turnout, pick them by hand and see whether or not you are within statistical confidence levels from what the machine gave you. If you are, then, okay, it is what it is. But if not, then there's a problem. And now you're going to have to hand count the entire state. And and in Michigan, you can do that because you have actual paper that gets filed. Just like here in Tennessee, we do the same thing. They have a machine that you cast your votes on, but it prints out a piece of paper. That piece of paper is the actual ballot and gets counted in in the optical scanner. And so that paper still exists. And if there is a question as to what, you know, what the machine says, you can go back and you can count those with people. And you need to do that with an observer from both the Democrat and Republican side. And uh, and then the other the other thing that has to be looked at is ballot security. Was was there some sort of authentication system in place so that only actual ballots uh, are put into the stream as ballots? Because due to the way that, that our system works and should continue to work, whether you know who cast what ballot once the voting has happened cannot be determined. Okay. So, and, and, and God help us if that ever changes. <laughs> the secrecy of ballots is a, is a, a primary principle of representative government. Uh, but you, you cannot allow the stuffing of ballot boxes. And, and I don't know that it happened. Um, again, there are indications that there is a problem with the ballot stream. There, I hope that the states, which run the elections, have implemented sufficient security measures so that if that occurred, it can be found and stopped uh, and, and can be backed back out. I don't know that that's the case, but knowing that a ballot was invalid does not necessarily mean who voted it. It just means that you know that, uh, you know, for example, if there was a watermark on the paper and it's not there. Well, obviously, duh, that wasn't a legitimate ballot, right? Somebody stuffed a piece of paper in the box. So we need to go through that process, and that has to happen. There, there are indications of trouble in Michigan. There are indications in Pennsylvania, in Georgia. Um, there's also indication of trouble in North Carolina. And there's in, I saw it in another state, it's a red state though, um, that, that went for Trump. And and again, you know, I mean, I, hey, fraud is fraud, okay? <laughs> I'm not saying that both sides don't play this game because everybody does. The question is, does it change the outcome? And that's what has to be established. And that's that's why the process takes time to work out. So, Carl, one thing that uh, my view is that no, no matter how this turns out, we have uh, a huge fiscal issue uh, nationally. Uh, the Fed, I think, printed like $3 trillion out of thin air this year, uh, created money, I guess is a better way to, 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 to phrase it. Um, there, there's talk of uh, potentially more stimulus moving ahead. Um, there, there's talk of uh, very aggressive new programs, and you know there, there's 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 no money, there's no tax revenue to to pay for this. So it just seems that moving ahead, it's going to make sense for people to think about you know having tangible assets in their portfolio. Uh, would you agree with that? 
Well, yeah. Remember, the Fed can't print money. They can only print credit. Correct. All right. So you have to, uh, you know, and every piece of credit that gets emitted into the system dilutes the value of all existing funds that have been earned by people doing real things. So the idea that this is not going to eventually show up somewhere in inflation is just flat out nuts. I mean, you're already seeing it in the stock market. But, you know, everybody loves it when it happens in the stock market. When it happens in the price of eggs, not so much. And that's, yeah, and I mean, and that's the danger is that all of these people think they're masters of the universe and and can control where it goes. And history has said that that is always wrong, that you think it's right for a while. Everything seems to be okay, and then it blows up in your face. So there, there is real trouble there. And the other problem that I see and that I'm really, really unhappy about is, as you know, as we've talked about before when I've been on your show, there is a serious fiscal cliff problem coming with Medicare. And my projections 25 years ago were that this was going to you know, nail us somewhere around 2028, 2025. And in about 10 years back, that got revised to 2024. There it has stayed until all of this stuff with COVID and the money printing. It's now been moved up a year to 2023. So within the next three years, you're going to face a situation where the Medicare system cannot pay the bill. I don't know what they do about that. But as, as it stands, the funds just simply are not going to be there to pay Medicare bills. And we're not talking about being short by 10 or 15% either. Medicare runs an 80% cash deficit. So, Carl, drill down on that because I think maybe some of our listeners that are, are you know, Medicare beneficiaries, they're covered by Medicare. Um, exactly what happens in 2023 specifically when you say an 80% cash deficit, uh, explain that for our listeners that maybe don't quite understand what that means. Well, what that means is Medicare only has $1.05 that it actually spends. The rest is coming out of the bond reserves that they have held and that they've built up over the years. And by allowing the, the medical system to go from 4% of GDP to 20% without indexing the tax receipts over that 30-year period, you have put yourself in a situation where that money is simply not going to exist. Now, under present law, Medicare cannot hit the general treasury, which means they cannot pay when that when they run out of that reserve. So you are in in all probability, you're talking about forty percent, fifty percent of those bills going unpaid. And that's a huge problem. And it you know, you can bet Congress will try to do something to resolve that, right? But you can't fix it with a tax increase. Because you'd be talking about a 500% Medicare tax increase in the payroll tax. That's that, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, that's what, a 12 and a half, 13% tax? Yeah, it's just not going to happen. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the four or 500% increase, not, you know, not four or 5%, 500%. I don't know what they will do. The obvious thing that they could try to do would be for them to lift the prohibition on Medicare hitting the general fund directly, okay? The consequence of doing that, however, is almost certainly an immediate credit downgrade for the United States. And what that does to the Treasury market is anybody's guess. So our guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. 
and I'll continue my conversation with Carl after these words. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl's website uh, hosts his blog. It is market-ticker.org. Check it out. Uh, Carl's uh, got a terrific perspective and a very entertaining writer as well. So, Carl, let me just uh, drill down a little bit more on, uh, on, on Medicare because in the last segment you said that by 2023, uh, that's really where you know the, the the rubber meets the road. At that point, something has to happen, and you stated that you know Congress will probably try to do something. But I mean, you you made a statement that like fifty to sixty percent of bills will not be able to be paid. It, it just struck me when you said that 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 really reeks of of rationing and deciding who gets what treatment. Uh, well, how do you think this gets resolved? Well, it's yeah, and, and that's actually a rather conservative estimate. It could be eighty percent. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the usual way that this has been handled in the past is in order to continue promoting the monopolies that we have within the health system, it has been shifted onto the private market. And so my, my assumption that 50 percent is that they'll do what they can to continue to do that. But that is probably about the limit as far as how, they can, how far they can go, because the actual deficit is, is closer to, to four dollars and five. Uh, the problem is that, again, what you get into is exactly what you described. It's, it's a rationing situation. And the only way to fix it is to break the monopolies, which incidentally would drop the cost of medical care by close to 80%. That would balance the books. But if you do that, then all those people that have made billions and billions of dollars suddenly go bankrupt. And whether or not you would ever see any you know, real move on that, uh, I mean, that's uh, that is probably why you had a delay in the reports of these Pfizer uh, vaccine results, for example, because Pfizer absolutely hates the concept of having to price drugs in America on a most favored nation basis. If they have to do that, they can't charge, uh, you know, Great Britain uh, a third of what they charge people in the United States. Then, oh, oops. <laughs> OK. <laughs> I mean, and yet that's what. You know, and it's not just the drug industry. It's every aspect of the medical business has done this for the last 35, 40 years. And, and, and Carl, how do the pharmaceutical companies, I mean, this is really not reported anywhere. I mean, that's one of the reasons I always like to talk to you, because you, you provide this perspective. And I think it's something that, uh, you know, the average average everyday American just says, well, that's how much my prescriptions cost. And they're that much all over. But that's really not the case. No. And, and here's the other aspect of it, too. They thought that this this has been ruled twice to be a violation of antitrust law all the way up to the Supreme Court. So the pharmaceutical and medical industry has twice lost cases. These and these cases go back to the late 1970s and early 1980s. Violating federal antitrust law is not just a civil offense; it's a criminal felony. It's supposed to get you 10 years in the can. And so, you know, the reality is, is we've gone through the last 20 to 30 years. Nobody's been prosecuted for this. Nobody's been fined. Nobody's been put out of business. And it just gets worse and worse and worse every year. 
And so, you know, we went from, again, three and a half to four percent of GDP being consumed by healthcare in the United States to roughly one dollar and five. And that's where the root of this problem is. And it's the, it is the entirety of the federal deficit issue, all of it. The rest of it is completely irrelevant. You fix that and the entire problem's gone. But if you fix it, you take this entire industry that has built itself up, itself up on grift and fraud. And, and uh, you know, what happens to it? I mean, if, if you think about it, we're 330 million people in the United States. There's how many billion in the world today? Okay. Um, if we cut our prices by 80%, those would go up by, by what, 20? Right? I mean, you know, if it was just evenly distributed across everybody else in the world. I mean, this is not a disaster for everybody else. We've been subsidizing all forms of medical care as the United States now for the last 40 years. Well, and as you say, the numbers dictate that that has to change. Now, when yeah. you pro- when you propose that solution that, that, you know, just, you know, price it the same way all over, uh, that, that's, that's a very commonsensical sounding solution, which would seem to indicate to me that that's not the solution that we're going to pursue. So how do you see this playing out? I don't know. My guess is is that is uh, you know when the, when the money runs out, the money runs out. Okay. So what are the what are the options? Well, one's rationing. Okay. If, if you happen to be old and and forty pounds overweight or four hundred pounds overweight, uh, oops, too bad. You you made your decision. Have a nice day. You die. Um, could that end up being sort of the way this ends up turning? Yeah, it could. The the thing is is that that still interrupts the cash flow. Right. I mean, whether whether they ration care. Or whether they kill the monopolies, the endpoint for for the industry is the same because the money doesn't get spent. If, if you can't continue to put, you know, 10, 11, 12 percent on this every year because the economy just doesn't expand that fast and the tax revenue doesn't expand that fast, then eventually it has to stop. And and how, you know, w- what the political ramifications of that are and how they try to prevent that from turning into a bunch of grannies with shotguns on the steps of the Capitol. It's, I think, the, you know, the more interesting uh, aspect of this. I don't know what they'll do, but I but I do know what the math says will happen, and they'll try to mitigate it in some way. I just don't know what the path will be. Yeah, 2023 is close. I mean, that's, that's three years away, so this, that's going to be on uh... – Really, on the next uh, the next administration's watch. Absolutely, and it's one of the things that I I think you're seeing so many other uh, ideas that are out there because then you can blame them in other places. I mean, like, for example, you know, people say, well, you know, we hate fracking. Well, well gee, that's nice. Um, one of the reasons we produce about the same amount of carbon dioxide in the United States today as we did in the 1980s is because natural gas is so cheap that you're crazy to burn coal instead of it. And you get twice as many BTUs of energy for the same amount of carbon dioxide emitted out of natural gas as you do out of coal. Well, you didn't have to pass any laws. The, the law of economics says that I'd be nuts to spend more money to get the same amount of energy than I would otherwise have to spend. <laughs> okay, I mean, it's, you don't do anything except let, you know, let, let the free market work there, and it did. So, Carl, it just seems to me that, I mean, we, we had a – just to shift gears slightly and, and going back to the uh, – the budget shortfall in, in, in Medicare, and that really extends to, uh, you know, other areas as well. Um, you know, the, the Fed has now, now, Powell has just come out recently and said pretty much that, you know, whatever you want to spend, we're going to support you. Translation, you know, the sky's the limit. Uh, whatever you need us to create, we're going to create. 
So that would seem that, you know, we're, we're playing right into the, the Thomas Jefferson prophecy that, you know, if you ever let private bankers control the issue of your currency, they'll basically first through inflation, then through deflation, you know, destroy the country. And that, that certainly seems to be the path that we're on. Yeah, I'm I'm very, you know, the, the idea that the Fed can level this kind of thing out and can, can you know, sort of come in and save the day, that, that sort of idea is, is very quaint. And it works right up until it doesn't. And as we found out in the 1970s, you know, there was this idea that repression, which was undertaken after World War II, to keep the bond market under control was, a, was you know, the tree that would never stop bearing apples, right? And we'd never have a problem with it. It was all okay. And yada, yada, yada. Well, we know how that worked out, right? When, then you had the oil shocks and, and there was no resiliency within the system to absorb them. And, uh, you know, Nixon was essentially forced off the gold standard. We, we did that. And, and what came after that? Oops. Um, where does this go here? Well, as long as it all shows up in things like the stock market, no one cares. When it starts to show up in things like gallons of gasoline and your health insurance bill and the price of a dozen eggs, um, or, or God forbid, you force electric utilities off natural gas, they have to go to wind and solar and it's three times the price and your electric bill triples. Um, uh, boy, I don't know how, you, how the Fed fixes that problem. Yeah, and it certainly seems, uh, uh, Carl, that uh, you know we're, we're we're headed in that direction. And you know, the 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 point I always like to make is that you know when 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 all this money creation happens and we have inflation, I mean, it's it's always a tax. There's no free lunch. And when you hear politicians talk about you know free college tuition, free this, free that, um, it's not free. If it's funded through money creation, then uh, you know we're all going to pay for it in the term, you know, from an inf inflation tax perspective. Absolutely. And the uh, the idea that you can outrun it as an ordinary citizen by being in the market is crazy because you do, you know, if if it all ends up in the stock market, you may think you're doing it for a while. But the problem is only your surplus can go into investments. And, and what you earn is not 100 percent surplus. Some part of it is necessary to maintain your life. And so because of that, if it if it impacts other things other than just the stock market, and eventually it always does, then you always lose because you can't possibly keep up with the devaluation. So, what do you forecast, uh, Carl? Assuming the Fed um, stays on its its current uh, course, and I, I think that. Uh, uh, Fiat currency this year in 2020 alone has increased by like 65%, according to Alistair McLeod at Gold Money. Um, that can't happen for another year without seeing significant inflation, in my view. Do you do you agree? Well, you would think not. I mean, it's uh, the interesting thing is is that when you look at when you look at the dollar index and you look at the other currencies around the world. Um, there, you know, there's some evidence that there's a global beggar thy neighbor kind of thing going on, uh, which of course, as long as everyone's doing it seems to be, you know, seems to be kind of normal, right? What you would expect is that it would lead to general price index increases across the world in roughly ratable proportion. Well, that hasn't happened. And so the, the obvious question is who are you taking the margin from? Because someone is losing operating margin when that happens. and and that's the unknown question right now is where's that operating margin coming from? 
when does that margin expire? When do you run out of it? And at that point, does all of this that you've pent up throughout the world, not just here in the United States, all of a sudden come home to roost? And when you do that, you put people in a position where they have nothing to lose. And that's how you get violent political upheavals. So, uh, you know, I mean, the idea that, that you're just going to go root, you know, loot and burn and, you know, whatever, uh, which has happened in some cities, just because you want another pair of Nikes, it's a little different when you don't have anything to eat. Yeah, for sure. Well, our guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. I'd encourage you to check out his blog at market-ticker.org. And Carl, uh, you're always so gracious with your time. Uh, I know I appreciate it. I know the listeners do as well. Love to have you back down the road. Anytime. Thank you. We will return after these messages. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you've been listening to the whole program today, you know that in the first segment, I talked about the fact that the chair of the Federal Reserve, Mr. Jerome Powell, said the week before last that the Fed can, and I'm quoting, certainly look at new facilities if the situation deteriorates. So in this segment, we want to explore and speculate as to what the Fed might decide to do. Now, as I mentioned in the first segment, the Fed has already printed money and purchased assets from member banks. The Fed has already loaned newly printed money to the U.S. Treasury. The U.S. Treasury, through the use of SPVs, has been buying private corporate bonds. And the Fed has already begun to indirectly monetize US, the U.S. government's operating deficit. So what else might the Fed decide to do? I mean, that's already a lot. As I said at the end of the first segment, if 10 years ago you would have said the Fed was going to give money to the Treasury and the Treasury, the U.S. government, would be out buying corporate bonds, you would have said, that can't happen, and yet, here we are. So when the Fed chair says, we can certainly look at new facilities, let's kick around some ideas. And let me be careful to point out that these are, at this point, simply thoughts. To my knowledge, none of these ideas, none of these strategies or techniques is actually being seriously considered. Well, the Fed is not directly engaging in the stock market. Now, the Japanese central bank has been. Well, what would prevent the Fed from printing money and getting it to the U.S. Treasury and having the U.S. Treasury via SPVs buy stock? It would simply be a parallel move to the bond purchases the U.S. Treasury is already making. And it's been done in Japan. Well, many of you are probably saying, wouldn't that be good for stocks? Shouldn't I buy stocks? Well, money printing, money creation, as I talked about with Carl Denninger, simply means that you're diluting 
the money supply. And you're simply making each unit buy less and be worth less. That certainly drives up stock prices, but it also drives up the price of everything we buy every day, groceries and things like that. Ideally, you would have an asset in your portfolio that would tend to increase exponentially or at a greater rate than the purchasing power of the dollar would decline. Now, the second thing the Fed might consider, also this has been done around the world, they might implement negative interest rates. Past Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan has openly stated and been quoted in many articles that negative is just a number. We could certainly go negative. Well, what would that mean? Well, that simply means that the Fed would charge member banks. And banks might charge you a fee to keep your money in the bank. Now, should that policy be implemented, it would certainly make holding cash a lot more attractive. So going significantly negative with interest rates, I believe, would be a lot easier to do with a digital currency, which is something that we have talked about on the program here in the past as well. The third thing the Fed could do, and I think this is probably the most likely, the Fed could get, as part of a stimulus package, more money created and have it distributed directly to the population. Well, that's known as helicopter money. Money going directly from the printing press to the population. Some of you listening to the program today probably got a $1,200 stimulus check in your mailbox earlier this year. That was a form of helicopter money. This could be expanded on. Now, the point of going through this critical thinking exercise is simply this. All of the above options or any other options that the Fed might creatively develop will require that the central bank create more money. So if you don't understand quantitative easing perfectly, if you don't understand SPVs, if you don't understand digital currencies or negative interest rates, all you need to know is this. Any of these options will require that the central bank create more money. And given current circumstances, more money creation seems inevitable. That means that tangible assets and assets related to or tied to tangible assets probably make sense for many investors to consider. Now, if you've been listening to this program for many years, you know that I've suggested that investors consider the merits of owning tangible assets, specifically physical precious metals, as part of their portfolio. Now, for those of you that followed that advice, and again, let me remind you that these are general suggestions. You should always talk to someone who's familiar with your situation to see what makes sense for you. But owning metals and tangible assets, I believe, will likely continue to be good advice for the near term as well. 
And if you would like to get some thoughts and some ideas as to how you could buy precious metals, feel free to give the office a call at 866-921-3613. I'll give that number again. It's 866-921-3613. And you can schedule a time to talk to someone about metals. Now, in the book that was released earlier this year that many of you supported, and thank you for that, Revenue Sourcing, I advanced the idea of using a two-bucket approach to manage your money. One bucket of stable assets from which you can take income and another bucket to protect you from the effects of inflation that will likely come about as a result of more money printing. Well, metals for many people can be a good investment to have, a good asset to have in that inflation bucket. And again, if you would like to talk to someone about how to buy metals to see if it makes sense or get some more information, feel free to give the office a call. Again, the number 866-921-3613. We also have at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, many resources that are available for you to Uh, access for free to help educate yourself. Again, remember, nobody cares as much about your money as you do. The website, again, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.